there, and welcome back to the show. This is Brett, and uh, we are back with episode 120, uh, Defending Science with Professor Chris Exley. If you are a regular listener of the show and a subscriber, uh, you would have noted that uh, we've released two episodes back-to-back. Uh, this is part two, in a sense, and uh, the short end of the story is that our first episode uh, basically vanished from the archives, uh, so I dug up the original audio, I reposted that yesterday, and uh, you can check that out, episode 119, uh, Aluminum Deep Dive. In this episode, what we really do, which is really neat, is we've actually, um, I sort of caught up with Chris now four years on from the original recording. And in that recording, that's where we really get quite, um, you know, we really dive deep into aluminum and toxicity and what his findings are and, uh, you know, looking at uh, aluminum in, br- in the brain of Alzheimer's um, patients, uh, in the case of autism as well, and some of these other neurological um, uh, diseases, if you want to call them that. And uh, we speak quite technically about what all of that is, how to detoxify aluminum, uh, what the health implications are, and so forth. And in this episode, what I wanted to speak with Chris about is the the fallout from his research. So in other words, what has happened, because um, the short end of the story, once again, is that as Chris uncovered more evidence and more information and presented his findings, which his seminal paper has been downloaded over a million times, which is unheard of in the scientific um, community. So he is an esteemed scientist. He's very well credentialed. He's he's done a ton of work. Um, he is actually a member of or a fellow of the Royal Society. And this is really one of the highest achievements that any scientist um, can be awarded. You know, this is in the category of Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, uh, you know, Hawking and, and Nobel laureates. So... Um, it's interesting that as he's had these findings, he's an esteemed scientist, no one has been able to disprove what he's uh, found. And instead of the medical and the scientific community embracing this and sort of saying, hey, we have some good information here as to what might be contributing to some of these illnesses. Let's work off that. Let's build off that. But instead what actually happened was all of his funding has dried up. He's essentially been forced into retirement, if you will, and has lost his position at the university that he was teaching at, a tenured professor, uh, ostracized by the scientific community. The mainstream media won't even touch him. And what that segues into for the bulk of our conversation today is the idea of evidence-based medicine and the idea of follow the science. And we question here, uh, are we in fact seeing the objective truth? You know, it's very easy to label people as science deniers, right? It's a very, it's a, it's a cop-out. It's a very easy way to just smear people. But it's totally different when we actually sit down critically and look at all of this and say, are we being presented with all of the evidence? And I think when you look into things like genetically modified foods is, a, is an example that comes to mind. You know, who's funding these labs that are doing the research? Who's funding the clinical trials? And in the case of the pharmaceutical companies, are we in fact seeing all of the clinical trials? Are we seeing all of the data? Are we seeing all of the information here so that we can actually base our evidence or base our choices that we're making 
on unbiased, objective evidence, which is true science. And as you're going to find out in this episode, uh, you might be a little bit shocked to find that we're not. Um, I've read books on the subject. I have dug into this over many years. And unfortunately, what we are being presented with is a curated version of science. Okay, and one only has to look at the last two and a half years to see that in action, right? Everything is safe. It's effective. Just take it. It works. Drugs work, right? And a recent Cochrane review, a meta-analysis, a systematic review, found that 94% of medical interventions do not have high-quality evidence backing them. Right? We see articles in the journal Nature where there's a large percentage, more than half, in some cases 75% of scientific studies cannot be replicated, cannot be reproduced. We've got problems with peer review. We've got problems with glad handing in the journal, uh, the editors, the journals, and so forth. So this is not really a question of um, questioning the scientific method as much as it is questioning the funding and the politics that are driving science in today's world. And we live in a world where people look up to science, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what we need to be asking ourselves is how do we move forward here where we are not seeing this curated version, where we are in fact seeing the truth and we are in fact seeing all of the, you know, the sides of the picture, if you will. So this is a very, very important conversation, I find. And when you have an esteemed scientist like Chris uh, experiencing being smeared, defunded, et cetera, et cetera, despite the fact that no one can actually disprove his work, this is very, very troubling as we move forward here, uh, especially in the middle, quote unquote, of a pandemic uh, that doesn't seem to be letting up. All right. So uh, anyway, um, thanks for listening to the rant. Uh, this is a subject that is very dear to my heart, and um, I, I've definitely not experienced anything at, to the degree or the level that Chris has. But certainly, as I've been outspoken about many of the issues that we're facing today, uh, people love to throw the science book back at me. And uh, this podcast really digs a little bit deeper into the uh, underbelly and the underpinning of uh, what is actually going on with science these days. So uh, thanks again for tuning into the show. If you do enjoy this episode, uh, please subscribe, leave us a review, share it, uh, do what you can, and uh, help us to keep bringing more awesome guests like Professor Chris Exley. So without further delay, let's hop into today's show. Hi, Chris. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Well, it's great to be back, and thanks very much for... Uh accommodating me getting up early to do this uh, to do this interview i really appreciate that oh, I, I have young children so this is uh this is not early at all i've been up for a little bit already <laughs> um now you know j just to kind of tee up our whole conversation today uh for listeners um chris and i actually had a conversation a few years back um, don't know how, don't know what happened, but mysteriously that episode along with a couple of others vanished um, from yeah. the archives, from uh, the internet. Um, and uh, I'm going to repost that because I obviously have the original audio. So what I would encourage listeners to do is uh, go and listen to that episode first, perhaps. And uh, that's going to get into a lot of the 
um, the finer points with um, aluminum and some of your work and what you've discovered and all that sort of stuff. And uh, today, what I would like to do is really just um, a give give people a potted bio on on who you are, what you've done. Uh, we can then sort of tack on maybe some of the newer research that you've uncovered in the last three or four <laughs> years. And then I would like to spend a good chunk of time uh, talking about what's actually going on um, with science and and politics in a sense. Um, and, and we sure. can uh, sort of talk a bit more about that. So, Chris, um, you know, for people that don't know your work and don't know who you mm-hmm. are, um, perhaps give us the, the canned version of uh, your background and, and what you're most famous for, I guess. Sure. Yeah, well, I, I'm a biologist. So, you know, don't don't believe whatever somebody wrote on Wikipedia or something. Apparently, I'm a chemist. So I, I did a biology degree at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Um, and I went up there primarily because I knew that the university had a, a fishing lake, Loch, and I love to fish. So I thought, well, you know, why not go to university there? It also had a famous... Uh, institute called the Institute of Aquaculture. Aquaculture is farming fish. And in those days in the, uh, when we're talking about now, the uh, very early 80s, aquaculture was a brand new industry in many ways. So I thought I'd be able to tap in in some way into what was happening there. And actually in my fourth year of my degree, it's a four-year biology degree, I was able to go there and do a research project. And my research project was, um, well, at the time, in this, we're talking about 1980, 1980, there was a lot of uh, press coverage on acid rain. Um, acid rain was, you know, was what climate change is today. It was the major um, ecotoxicant. But we didn't really understand why trees were dying because of acid rain or fish were dying because of acid rain. And I remember reading something, actually it came from a paper from Scientific American about acid rain in the Adirondacks in, in the US over in, in your, your side of the pond about the possibility that aluminium was involved. You know, and up until that point, I had no idea that aluminium was anything other than something used for pots and pans and stuff. So it just came completely out of the blue and I decided to say, well, okay, I'm going to do a research project looking at aluminium toxicity in fish. And to a certain extent, I guess, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. I went on to do a PhD in the subject. And then I became, I guess, I was never really interested in in fish per se, apart from catching and, and sometimes eating them. Uh, I was interested now in the story of aluminium. And this became a really exciting paradox for me because I learned very quickly that aluminium was the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust and yet had no biological function at all. And this was a fascinating paradox. And I took it on and I wanted to learn more about that. And so I spent the next, my maths is a little bit uh, awry here, but something like 35, 36 years trying to understand that paradox. And during that time, you know, we have published over 200 peer-reviewed publications. I've recently written a book, which hopefully you can can put a link to for your readers. Um, And we have made what I would say is 
quite significant progress in not only understanding the role of aluminium in living things, but actually in demonstrating that aluminium is only bad for humans. So in human exposure to aluminium is a very bad thing. It's brought me into fields like Alzheimer's disease and more recently fields like autism. And, you know, we have made really significant progress in that area until I was asked to retire just a few months ago. Yeah, well... That's uh, that's perfect, actually. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about your uh, quote unquote retirement um, in a minute. So um, if I recall correctly from our previous conversation, I mean, you've you've really done a lot of, um, you know, very granular work um, in terms of studying brains, right? So looking at brains and looking at aluminum contamination, uh, toxicity, etc. And and of course, um, prior to probably three or four years ago, all of that was ticking along quite nicely, and I don't think you had too many detractors um, for, from your work at that time, right? Um, now, you, you brought up autism, and of course, anytime you dip your toe in the autism uh, water, um, it's uh, immediately controversial. You, you know, anytime you, you don't subscribe to autism is caused solely by, by genes, and uh, we, you know, we need to keep banging on the genetic um, drum, uh, all yeah. of a sudden it's controversial, right? So, um, you know, in, in terms of your findings, uh, you know, you talk about contamination, toxicity, etc. Like, are there very clear lines between things like Alzheimer's and aluminum contamination in the brain? Yeah, I mean, we, to begin with, we did have, uh, we did work with animal models. We started, obviously, working with the fish, and we learned a great deal from that. But, you know, aluminum is singled out by the establishment as something where if you show something in an animal model, it's meaningless. But while we have used animal models to describe every other illness on the planet, if you then go on to show, for example, that exposure to aluminium causes an Alzheimer-like condition in a rabbit or a rat, you're told, well, it's just a rabbit or a rat. So we made a decision about... uh, uh, 12 years ago that we would only work on humans from now on because that would make it a little bit more difficult to discount our findings. And yes, what we did primarily uh, alongside some clinical studies, but primarily we looked at aluminum in human brain tissue and we began a very extensive program on that. Now that's an extremely controversial area because again, the detractors kept telling everyone any aluminium in human brain tissue, this is an artifact, this is contamination processing of, of the tissue, etc., etc. And we knew this was unlikely to be the case, but we had to produce seminal work showing otherwise. And that's what we started by doing in um, what was a, a study on 60 human brains, where we were able to essentially go from the freezer where the brains were kept all the way through to the actual measurements of the aluminium content of tissue in our laboratory show every single process, every single stage, and not only that, match those processes with exact same process in which there is no tissue. In other words, be able to assess and uh, estimate the background level of contamination. And we did that, and therefore we were able to you come up with a value which 
we could say, okay, we can subtract this from anything we actually find. And as soon as you started to do that, you still found really quite significant amounts of aluminium in human brain tissue. And this, you know, even before I was convinced that all the other research done by many others was absolutely correct, they were correct, we had to prove this point. So that was done in a seminal paper, I think we published that in 2012. We moved on from there uh, by systematically looking at different types of human brain tissue. And I suppose you brought up the subject of Alzheimer's. I suppose that was, in many ways, the focus in the early parts of that, and, and indeed more latterly. And again, you know, we were able to do research on human brain tissue taken from donors with Alzheimer's disease, and we were able to show significantly higher levels of aluminium. What we then decided to do, because, again, we weren't really... We, we weren't really making the impact that that should have done. It was being just discounted and ignored to a certain extent. We said, right, there's a form of Alzheimer's disease that's called familial Alzheimer's disease. And in familial Alzheimer's disease, those people who suffer it usually start to get symptoms of the disease maybe as early as their 40s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whereas sporadic Alzheimer's disease would be 70s, 80s, 90s. So we then decided, let's get some human brain tissue of individuals who've died um, with the diagnosis of familial Alzheimer's disease. And this was where things really took off, at least in my mind, because there we found some of the highest levels of aluminium ever measured in human brain tissue. And not only that, we were able to directly link them to some of the other specific pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, such as something called the um, amyloid beta protein. Hmm. And we published this in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And even the editor of the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease said, look, this is probably um, a, seminal, a seminal piece of work. It, you know, this could change everything. Well, actually, it changed absolutely nothing <laughs> because they ignored us completely. But it didn't change things in my mind. And soon after that, you know, I'm... I was prepared then to write an editorial for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease Reports, in which I said, no aluminium in brain tissue, no Alzheimer's disease. Wow. In other words, wow. you've got to, you know, Alzheimer's disease is, is a disease of the modern life. Genes always play a part in modern life, and they will play a part in Alzheimer's. But it, they will not give Alzheimer's in the normal longevity of human beings, which let's say is 100 years, in the absence of some significant toxins. And the most significant toxin in human brain tissue is aluminium. Huh. So huh. That, that became yeah a, a, a moment for me. And even though, of course, as usual, I was completely ignored, the work wasn't ignored. The work has been followed and picked up and looked at and discussed certainly within the academic community and of course within communities such as your own. Yeah. So people know about this work. It's just that it it, it is you know, if you were to ask the Alzheimer's Society, they'd say, Oh no, no, this is this is rubbish, this work. It, it's been it's been shown to be completely wrong. They wouldn't even make they they wouldn't try to support their views, but that's what they will tell people who contact them and ask about about it. 
Yeah. So, it's strange, so, isn't it? When a major charity for a, one of the world's most devastating diseases does not want to know what causes the disease. Well, it, it brings into, um, in my mind anyway, brings into focus um, a, a few things. I mean, you, you've got all of these, you know, run run for this, walk for that. You've got a, all these big fundraisers, yeah. and yet we still have all these diseases. You know, yet, yeah. yet in animals, we've got all sorts of crazy pills and formulas and what have you that can just, um, you know, quote unquote, fix them. So we figured out a lot of stuff with animals, but with human beings, somehow we just, we, we're always so close to finding that cure for cancer or for whatever, but we just never quite seem to find it, right? No. And and uh, again, without getting conspiratorial. We need, we need one more uh, fun, fundraising campaign. Right, and, in, and you yeah. know, this, this is the, the, the medical and pharma machine. And uh, of course, these are uh, cornerstones of, of the economy, right? So uh, big money-making mm-hmm. machines. And we'll talk yeah. a bit more about that in a second. But, um, you know, you, we, we've obviously just touched on Alzheimer's, but as far as I recall, you have now also looked at other illnesses such as uh, other neurodegenerative issues, um, autism, which we spoke about and so forth. So perhaps you could yeah. sort of expand on that and just um, do these illnesses also show um, unusually high levels of, of aluminum in the brain? Well, the, the two others where we have looked at extensively, well, first, let, let's let's just go back one step an important study that we did was where I asked the chief neuropathologist at the London Brain Bank, I said, can you provide me with brain tissue from individuals who upon have donated their brains but have had no uh, neurological signs of neurodegenerative disease, including Alzheimer's, And indeed, when you looked at the brains, there was absolutely no neuropathology. So in other words, these people had died of being hit by a bus or cancer or something else, something in which their brains remained completely intact and were, inverted commas, normal in terms of cognition. And the range of age of these, we got 21 donor brains. The age range was something like mid-60s to over 100 and we measured how much aluminium was there in their brain tissue. And there was almost none. Okay. In other words, yeah. if there is if you survive and live through to anything up to 105 years of age, you do not inevitably either get a neural neurodegenerative disease or do you necessarily accumulate significant amounts of aluminium. So there's something different about other populations of people where this happens. So we then, we've looked at, for example, multiple sclerosis, and multiple sclerosis, also the amounts of aluminium found in the brain tissue were, in some cases, extraordinarily high. Um, You know, it's a, for people who'd like to read, know more about this, it's probably easier for them to say, read my book, new book. Sure or something where all the details of this they can find and the background to it. Um, But, you know, the MS Society just said, no, it can't be true. Don't even even bother worrying about aluminium in multiple sclerosis. So the same type of response as we got from other major charities. However, the, the, the one that probably sparked the greatest interest was... For a while, 
a number of different research groups around the world had made some sort of correlation between, for example, vaccination and autism. And they, they hadn't necessarily got a mechanism whereby vaccines would, could be linked to autism. And we thought, well, look, bearing in mind, um, you know, what I believe about autism, which is that it is a disease, if aluminium is involved, it is going to be in the brain tissue. So let's get some. And we were able to we were able to get uh, donor tissue from 10 individuals who died with the diagnosis of autism. Five of those donor brains were uh, of a thought had been um, stored in a way which allowed allowed us to do quantitative analysis. All 10 allowed us to do uh, microscopy analysis. When we did the quantitative analysis of aluminium in, in human brain tissue in autism, the values we got were even higher than we saw in familial Alzheimer's disease. And wow. these were in, for example, I put in the abstract of the paper we published, you know, why has a 15-year-old boy who's died with a diagnosis of autism got this huge amount of aluminium in their brain tissue? How is that possible? And indeed, you know, that's the paper that we published in um, uh, journal. I don't my head now. What's it called? The Journal of. Oh, it doesn't matter. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. So we published this paper, and again, you know, actually, even before we published it, I gave it. I gave a talk in Paris about the work. I gave an interview after it, and I also, I sort of expected that I was going to be on the news at. 10, you know, for the, for the rest of several weeks, nothing, absolutely nothing from mainstream media whatsoever happened. However, the paper itself has been downloaded over 1 million times. Wow. So, and that's pretty extraordinary for a scientific paper. Probably yeah. Watson and Crick's structured <laughs> DNA has, all, has also. So at least there is interest out there. But of course, even though in the paper that we published of the aluminium in human brain in tissue in autism uh, showed these really significant levels, we did not make a specific link in that paper to vaccination at the time. Okay. Uh, we, we just wanted to say, this is what we found. But of course, that, that was the moment in which I became an anti-vaxxer. Right. I mean, all of a sudden, I was an anti-vaxxer and, you know, that 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 became something that was perpetuated and indeed became one of the reasons why my university asked me to leave. Yeah. So, um, but th that those data on autism, they, they are still the data themselves are real. No one has refuted them. No one has, as far as we know, repeated it work and said that we are wrong. We showed some quite remarkable microscopy images. Those remarkable images made the very strong suggestion the type of cells that go to the site of a, of a vaccine injection, the vaccine injection site, and take up the aluminium adjuvant used in the vaccine, we had evidence of those very same cells crossing the blood-brain barrier in these tissues from individuals with autism 
full of aluminium. So they, in other words, they were like Trojan horses carrying cargoes of aluminium into the brain tissue. And, you know, they could be, we came up at last for me, in my own mind, you know, I've been asked for many years before that, of how can, how can a vaccine cause the type of symptoms that you might see in autism within actually weeks, months uh, uh, of, of, of the vaccination or even of an infant's life? And it's very difficult until you see these data, until you see the images in particular, you now know that it is possible. You can produce an encephalopathy, a, a catastrophic loss of cells in a very specific area of the brain, simply by aluminium going inside these cells into the brain tissue. Those cells then die, releasing the aluminium, causing an inflammatory response within the tissue. So there is a mechanism. Wow. wow. <laughs> We, we have gone no further than that, primarily because we haven't been allowed to, but and no one else is taking this up yet. But it, yeah. it's, it's pretty damning evidence with respect to aluminium and autism. So a, a couple of questions. I mean, that is, that is truly mind-blowing, I mean, f first of all. And uh, a, a couple of questions that I'm sure listeners um, might be uh, thinking about right now. Are you suggesting, so this, I'll just say both of them while they're on my mind. Um, do yeah. you feel that with all of these illnesses, whether it be um, Alzheimer's, MS, uh, autism, like, are we saying that you, do you think Alzheimer's, I'm sorry, do you think aluminum is the, the sole contributor to that? Like that this is the main causative factor, or do you think that it's just part of, of the puzzle? Um, I, right. I, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, with Alzheimer's disease, I think it's highly likely that uh, something else would cause Alzheimer's disease uh, if individuals, if there was no aluminium and individuals lived beyond 100 years. Okay. So in other words, normal life, even with all the genes differences that there are amongst us, I think aluminium is an absolutely critical factor in that disease. Okay. okay. Um, the evidence for MS and indeed autism are similar in that what we have is quantitative data making the suggestion only. I, but I think that the data that we have for Alzheimer's now is irrefutable. You know, you will not get Alzheimer's disease if you do not have aluminium above a certain level in your brain tissue. And to me, this tells us something wonderful. It tells us that this terrible, devastating disease can be prevented you know, if there is a, and indeed, it's a political will to do so. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, with, with something like autism as well, there's obviously, it's multifactorial, right? I mean, it, that, the, we, I, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that aluminum and vaccination is specifically is 100% of the cause in every single case, right? I mean, there's, there are people who um, who have not been vaccinated, who, who develop autism. And of course, there's plenty of people who have been vaccinated who don't have autism, right? So, sure. um, yeah, I think it's important to put those things out there because, you know, what I really am trying to do here is steel man our conversation, um, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and really... Uh, you know, yeah, one of ahead. the things I want, I want to stress is... I'm only thinking about severe, debilitating autism. I know about this disease. I have a neighbor with a son 
with this form of the disease. This is not Rain Man. This is not something uh, to celebrate. This is a disease that has been caused by a toxin. The toxin either uh, came from the mother or came probably relatively soon from birth. So, you know, when you start to split autism into whatever you want to call it, I'm only thinking about one thing. I'm thinking about a disease which makes, which essentially disables a child. And that child has some recovery, but you will not recover the damage that was done to the brain tissue because we don't have that regenerative ability. But you will, if, for example, if you in some way stop the damage from continuing, you can hold it in place and right. an individual can get markedly better, actually, just through the normal then aging process. But I'm not one of these people who who thinks that, uh, you know, I, I consider autism to be a severely debilitating disease of infants, which is also preventable. Okay. Right. And and yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's the point of our conversation today, either to talk about things like neurodiversity and to split hairs with um, with the different shades of gray. Right. I mean, I really want to keep sure. us pointed towards aluminum and, and the, yeah. the, the, the toxic effects of that. Um, so and of course, there's also the compounded effect as well, you know, just coming back to vaccinations, right? It's it's one thing, you know, you've got all sorts of different schedules, uh, you, you know, a lot of people are choosing delayed vaccination schedules, which obviously would allow the body you know, some time to, uh, you know, detoxify um, aluminum residues and other toxins for that matter as well. So, um, but, you know, I mean, also the body changes, particularly with age. Yeah. So, for example, the majority of children who receive a vaccination with an aluminum adjuvant do not suddenly accumulate large amounts of aluminum in their brain tissue. So we have a population of infants that are more susceptible. Now, this is not because they are ill. This is because they are physiologically different in some ways to other populations. And that's true of everything, every single thing right. in life. But those differences do get ironed out more and more the more we age. Hmm. So when we're younger, we're much more susceptible to those types of differences. And so if you do decide, and I think it's absolutely wise to do so, and I write about this in my book, if you decide to delay vaccinations with aluminium adjuvants for as long as possible, it will be beneficial. Okay, good, good, good to know. And I think a lot of people are are on on that page as well, you know, certainly yeah. my community anyway. Um, now, you know, let's let's sort of segue into the other part of this conversation. And um, I think, you know, we can sort of open this up to science in general. But I'm curious, you know, um, First of all, what what happened? I mean, you, I, I'm on your newsletter. I get the emails and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there was obviously some catalyst that essentially caused you to um, essentially be expelled from the university that you were at. So perhaps, you know, can you share the story of, of what happened there and how that unfolded? Yeah. yeah, I mean, anyone who, you know, suffers from insomnia or something and wishes wishes to know the, the, the details, I have published them on my website under a tab called History. And uh, if you read that, and you know, it may well send you to sleep, but it may also <laughs> t- tell you something which you probably will find almost unbelievable. However, 
you know, we have made some really substantial progress in the last uh, two, three years. And I think that is was part of the problem. In other words, the university were prepared to put up with me in this, in let's say, over the last 10 years. Before that, I had no problem with the university. So something happened within the management, within the funding structure of my university about 10 years ago or so, which meant that they suddenly became very sensitive to my research, which they weren't before. And we can guess what that might be. It could be you know, taking money from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It could be having strong links with pharmaceutical companies like AstraZeneca, which we do. It could be that we also have very strong links with the UK National Health Service. And, you know, don't let anybody believe that the UK's National Health Service is anything other than another arm of the pharmaceutical industry. It isn't. That is all it is completely. And so the power it has... You know, we have a medical, we, we, I say we, there was a medical school at my university, you know, that depended on significant amounts of money every year from the National Health Service. So and all of a sudden, there's a lot of factors building up. And I don't know which, whether there was one moment that changed it all, but all of a sudden, well, there was an article published in one of the newspapers in the United Kingdom called The Guardian. Mm -hmm. and, and, but this newspaper, along with others, had previously published over the last few years before that lots of spurious, completely nonsensical, completely you know, without any fact articles about me and my research. And I, and I just ignored them. And when this latest one came out, I ignored it as well. But to my surprise my university decided not to ignore it. Hmm. And they used this article written in this newspaper as a reason to essentially suspend, to begin with, my research by telling me that I was no longer able to receive funding for my research from all of the, all of the places where I got my funding from which were philanthropic organizations, services, which were from individual donations, which were from charities. All of a sudden, I wasn't allowed to have that research money or any more of it. And the reason being um, was that they just needed to investigate, inverted commas, the, the, the inferences, et cetera, made within this article. Well, actually... We then learned, uh, I then learned something completely different, actually, because, and I write about this on my website. What actually happened was the vice chancellor of my university, that is the top person, the man right at the top, wrote a letter to the university's governing council to say that Christopher Exley and his research and research group is anti-vax. Huh. And we cannot allow an anti-vax person uh, to continue in the university. And he then asked for permission to permanently prevent me from getting funding for our research. Now, wow. the University Governing Council wouldn't know me from Adam. You know, these are, uh, these are not people 
that, 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 that are people you meet or <coughs> on a regular basis, when a vice chancellor tells them something, they believe it. And I know this because through my lawyer, because I brought in a lawyer at this point, or earlier than this, we got copies of the letter that the vice chancellor sent. So we know that he did this. So he created this, um, well, you know, what, what, what our old friend Donald Trump would call fake news for the University Governing Council about what me, my group, our research was all about. It was all about anti-vax, and I was a, I was the leading proponent of anti-vaccination in the United Kingdom, and I had to be stopped. Wow. And the truth is, then you know, once my we got this information, and my I, I, I have excellent lawyers, employment lawyers, who I've worked with in the past, and that's a different story. <laughs> but <laughs> they, you know, we knew that this was the end. Because universities are very are autonomous. They don't have to do anything that anybody else tells them to do. They can lose a case in a tribunal or something of that sort, but they will still get their way. All they'll have to do is pay out some money. And it's usually not very much because all these things are capped. So, you know, we were in a position, eventually I sat down with my lawyers and I said, well, look, Let's let's off. We we I I was not sacked because I had tenure, but I was not going to go back into the university without being able to do research. Yeah, it sort of like what, what's the point, right? I, well, for me, there was no point. I had spent all my life. I enjoyed the university experience, but I was only there for one reason, and that was the story of aluminium. So not to be able to continue to do that meant no sense to me. So we just said, right, let's offer them a, a deal of me leaving. And actually, they, <laughs> they, they bit our hand off on that deal to a certain extent. And that's why I was actually able to publish all this damning information on my website, which amazingly enough, I thought, it's a big explosion outside. I thought um, that journalists around the world would be writing this up and it would become like a, a scandal. You know, I am the most ignored person on the planet. I think it, was, it has been completely ignored by the vast majority of, uh, of, let's call it, mainstream news and media outlets. Right. They have not dared touch this information, even though we have... Not only do I, have I written about it, but we have all the documents to support it through not, not only the lawyer's work, but freedom of information requests, etc. I mean, I, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm very quickly resigned to the fact that they did what they needed to do and, that, and they made the right choice for how to get rid of me because they have tried to get rid of me in other ways before. And that's why I needed yeah. employment. And those had failed miserably. So, but they realized, if you don't give Chris research money, he, he won't stay. So I did a deal with them to leave. Huh. And right. that's where we are at the moment. But if you want to, you know, if, you, if your listeners and that would like to know the details of that deal, then it's all there on my website. Sure. And, and uh, you can, those of you listening out there, you can just check out the show notes. Um, I'll put a link to that. Um, but, you know, Chris, for, for me, this is, um, 
you know, I've spoken about these types of things in the past on the show, and and I've been looking into these types of things for a really long time now. And I think that what that does is opens up a larger conversation, in my mind anyway, which is, you know, this, this idea that uh, we hear it repeatedly, especially now over the last two and a half years or so, um, you know, follow the science, the science, the science, and we've got the scientism, you know, and, and uh, uh, just to sort of circle back to something you said, you know, the NHS, which is the national health system uh, being, you know, an arm of the pharmaceutical company. Uh, I think that people don't realize, you know, here in Canada, we've got a very similar um, healthcare system, right? It, it is government funded healthcare. And Health Canada, um, I found out last year or the year before, they received 90% of their funding from the pharmaceutical industry. You yeah. know, 90%, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know about anyone else, but generally you do what the boss tells you. Um, you, yeah. you know, that that's how it works. And so I think when we talk about things like, you know, science and follow the science, um, the question is, you know, are, are we getting all of the science? Uh, that, that's one thing, you know, and I think uh, what if, if anything, um, over the last two years, you know, you've got people like yourself um, who have independent research that's very, very well, it's very well researched, it's methodical, it holds its weight. And this is just being absolutely ignored uh, sure. and, and in, in favor of the official um, political science, if you want to call it that, that, yeah. that, that must be funneled through the mainstream media and so forth. And what that really does is, you know, it creates the scenario where you've got the larger population that truly believes in science. And I, I think you as a scientist, I'm not a scientist, but I truly believe in science and the scientific method. I think it's it's yeah. very important. But the problem yeah. is, is that uh, most people don't realize that what we are being presented with is not an objective scientific method with all different sides of, of the story. And I think, you know, um, I was recently reading a book, I forget the name of it, uh, very granular, very detailed, um, one of those books that do put you to sleep. But, uh, you know, it's it's the like the drug trials, uh, for example, mm-hmm. where, you know, people will say evidence-based medicine. And I've always yeah. said, I'm like, based on what evidence? You know, let, let's talk about that. You know, that's what we need to be talking about is based on what evidence. Yeah. And when you, uh, when you get into some of the stuff, what you realize is that, uh, they might do, and this is an actual example of a certain drug, they will do uh, 70 different trials, right? And and the there's 36 trials that will show either no change or mini- minimal benefits. And then there'll be 30, 35 others that will show, um, you know, negative effects or, or any, you know, side effects and that sort of stuff, or zero efficacy. And what they do is they will publish three of those studies, and then they'll publish all 35 or 36 of the studies that show favorable results or outcomes. And so what we're being presented with in this evidence-based scientific model is is not a true balance of, of things. And mm-hmm. what that's doing is it's really... It's, I feel it's misguided medicine in a sense where, you know, and it's not the doctor's fault. I mean, the doctor is following the evidence, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, so I think, you know, and, and I bring all of this up because I think it's very, very important in today's uh, world that we're living in. You know, I mean, people have been subjected to uh, vaccination mandates. They've been fired from their from their jobs for not taking these, you know, experimental shots. You, you've got people... Sure like uh, Geert van den Bosch, for example, like Mike Eden, you've got these people that are now just like yourself. These are poster people for anti the anti-vax movement. And it's like, but these guys have spent 40 years of their life developing 
and making vaccinations for pharmaceutical companies. Like how, and they're still saying that vaccination is important for, uh, you know, to, to prevent the next pandemic or to get us out yeah. of this. It's just that what they're saying is exactly to your point is we need to look at all of the science. We can't just cherry pick over what fits the political narrative. And, no. uh, and you know, that, that puts us in a very, very, um, uh, a, a very scary predicament if, if we look at it like that, uh, you know. So sorry to belabor the yeah. point, but I mean, uh, no, you, you know, you know it's, it's scientism, right? And uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on, on any of that. I mean, you're experiencing well, it, you're living it. So Yeah, I mean, first, you know, first of all, uh, I, I believe in science 100%. You know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is that every single one of my papers has been approved by the establishment, whether they liked it or not. In other words, we have made sure that it went through the system that is accepted and approved worldwide, the peer review system, etc. Obviously, that system has its faults and a great deal of not only rubbish, but as we've learned recently in retracted papers in The Lancet and stuff, completely false things as well get published in, in, in the first instance. But, you know, science has has a habit. True, good science has a habit of having longevity. So even though I am ignored today, and I may not live long enough not to be ignored, I know that my science is out there. And I know that it, uh, if at some point becomes relevant it will be there to 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 help to inform and to change things and so we have to we cannot give up on that i know a lot of people start to talk about different ways well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna publish my work through the substack or i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that i'm gonna have my opinion they're just opinions until we have an alternative system to what we have today, which is the established system, which is, you know, corrupt in many, many ways. We have, if you try to do something in another way, you can be ignored and you can, you will be ignored and you are to a certain extent rightly ignored. So <laughs> no, we, we, we have a system that we have to use in order to get our message across. And until that system changes and the consensus agrees with a new system, then that's what we must do. Now that makes, that to, to me, it makes a big difference because some good science will uh, change the world. But what we have at the moment is because of the way in which science is communicated, Hmm. It's extremely easy to ignore anything that it does not fit with the narrative of the day or the government narrative. It's extremely easy to ignore it. I mean, you know, how is it possible that on the day that we published our um, and, and spoke about our research on aluminium and autism, that not a single form of mainstream media anywhere in the world commented on it now that's the power that they have in order to suppress what a message they don't want to hear right this is and 
you know, it doesn't change the science. That's the thing I've always told myself. Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm ignored. But until somebody does an equally good piece of research to show that my research was in some way flawed or indeed my interpretations were wrong, then that is the science. Yeah. Science yeah. is that anyone, people who die with a diagnosis of autism have huge amounts of aluminium in their brain tissue. That's the fact that we know today. And until it's refuted, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything from the point of view of the science. So, yes, I'm not going to give up on science simply because politics has tried to hijack it. And, and essentially, they, we've seen through the two years or so of the COVID nonsense, total nonsense, that uh, government policies around the world have created science. They've told us things about biology that are nonsense. Yeah. And people yeah. believe them and they repeat them and the dogma gets repeated again. And it's no support is given. No support is necessary because it comes from so-called validatory systems. You know, it comes from the government or it comes from the National Health Service or it comes from... And so we, we have grown up to believe in these. Right. We can no longer believe in them. I turned off the BBC in March 2020. And it, I've never listened to a BBC news program or anything since. And I was a news junkie before that. Yeah. I actually realize now that I've been an idiot for an awful <laughs> long time because <laughs> I believed I believe what I was told on mainstream media. I don't believe anything I'm told on mainstream media now. And I and I know I'm right not to. Well, you know, what 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 this does really is is it brings into question and this is something I've been sort of sitting and thinking about for for a while is you know, what what this has really unearthed is is a is a deep mistrust, you know. So over the last two and a half years or so, I think that for a lot of people, they simply don't trust these institutions anymore because they can see with their own eyes that the story that we're being told on the news or the newspaper or whatever it is is not matching up with the reality that they're actually seeing in front of their eyes right yeah um, you know you speak about science uh, the, you know the, the made-up science right or the political science just to give um, listeners some insight here we're in Canada now and we're middle of June uh, 2022 and uh, we still, at time of recording, this is about to get lifted, we still have travel bans for unvaccinated <laughs> individuals, right? So this yeah. is a federal ban. You cannot get on an airplane, you cannot get on a train, you cannot get on a boat or anything unless you are fully vaccinated. And that definition is changing as well. Yet, at the provincial level, all the mandates are lifted. So yeah. I, I can get on a bus in the city, no problem. No one's, mm. So, so you know, how is this? And, and, and at the same time, we are one of the only countries in the world that still have these mandates in place. Yet our political leaders will tell us that they're just following the science, right? It's the science, <laughs> it's the science. And, yeah. and, and, you know, what this really does to me, and I think for a lot of people, is, is it questions the validity of of these institutions, right? So whether that's the medical institution, the pharmaceutical institution, the governments, and what have you, but I've I, I I wonder to myself, you know, what is what does the road forward look like here? Like, how do we 
how do we reestablish trust in these institutions and and can it be reestablished yeah. and and what is what is a what is a better system like how do we move beyond this because we know in the scientific world i mean there's problems with reproducibility there's problems with replication there's there's problems with the peer review uh, system as you said um you know journals can be corrupt because of where they're getting their funding on so there's a yeah. lot of these problems and and i do wonder to myself you know if we in a modern world where people like you and I are, are really looking at the objective science and trying our best to follow that science, um, you know, swimming upstream in a sense, uh, what does that look like in the future? You, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy no, it's to great, think about, you know. It's a, it, it is a great question. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I, I am still the only person at my old university to have been awarded something called a Royal Society University Research Fellowship. And my uh, uh, old boss and many of my his colleagues that I dealt with in my, my early days as a scientist were fellows of the Royal Society. And this meant a great, great deal. This is from, you know, Newton onwards. These were the great and the good of science. And one should be able to rely upon on them to give the scientific view. Now, unfortunately, the Royal Society of London, which is what I'm talking about, receives a substantial grant from the government. And that's it, all over. It used to be, not that long ago, maybe 20 or so years ago, they received nothing from the government. Everything came from members. Huh. But as soon as you take that money, that's it. You no longer make your own decisions. And so, for example, during COVID, I've had lots of discussions with really eminent scientists who are fellows of the Royal Society. I asked them, why are the Royal Society staying quiet about this? And they're staying quiet. They're not saying one way or another. They're staying completely quiet about it because they don't want to lose their funding. Right. So, so in, in a nutshell, I mean, we could say that they've passively been bought. Yeah, absolutely. Sense. They have been yeah. bought. Yeah, I mean, you've got a you, you've got a great example of this at the moment, just coming up. Wimbledon, Wimbledon tennis is Wimbledon will not allow players from Russia or Belarus to play in their tournament. Why is that? You know why it is? Because the government, through Sport England, gave them a grant of twelve million pounds this year to do as they're told. Right. And in fact, Wimbledon admitted to this. We couldn't afford not to accept. They say they couldn't. 12 million doesn't sound a lot for an organization like Wimbledon to me. But they said they couldn't afford to go against what the government wanted. And the government today in our country wants to vilify, you know, Russia and Belarus in the same way as they wanted to uh, promote the deadliness of the COVID yeah, virus. Yeah. So then the narrative is it is bought completely and utterly and if you go along with it you know i haven't gone along with it i'm proud to say i've never put a mask on my face even though i've not been well recently i've had to go into hospital on a number of different occasions i refuse to wear a mask i'm the only person in the hospital walking around not wearing a mask the only person and they look at me as if 
like a weirdo or something yeah actually well a lot actually. of these a lot of these things have, have now become normalized right and and yeah. you know, I, I think masking might be one of the more benign things but there's many other things that are uh, are far more detrimental you know especially with kids and that sort of stuff um that are becoming normalized Absolutely. but you know yeah. something you said earlier just coming back to the royal society wimbledon and stuff like that i think yeah. a, a lot of people need to also understand here in canada where i am is uh, we have something called the College of Physicians and Surgeons, right? And this is sort of the the governing body, if you will, of all yeah. of the doctors and uh, the, the medical field. And uh, basically, um, they have put out a gag order a long time ago, uh, you know, early days in the pandemic. Uh, if you say anything that's counter-narrative, um, if you do any, you know, you if you recommend anything, Aside yeah. from what we've told you to recommend, that could include things like something as simple as vitamin D, uh, mm -hmm. ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, mm -hmm. what, whatever it is that you think as a seasoned physician with all of your experience and your, your intention is just to help your patient not die and make it through this, you're not allowed to do that. The only thing you're allowed to do is what we tell you to do. And of course, as we all know, I mean, that that's really mass vaccination, right? So you've got to keep up. to sure. And and you've got these doctors that have lost their licenses. You've got, you know, it's crazy. And uh, again, it comes back to this whole idea of scienceism, right? And, and uh, you know, this is the science we're following. We're not looking at all of the science. Uh, no. So, well, yeah. Chris, um, you know, this is a fascinating conversation. And uh, I, I, you know, I think I actually learned more about your work this time around. Um, just into, I didn't know about the Royal Fellowship and some of those awards and stuff like that. So, you know, hopefully for for people listening here, um, definitely go and check out some of your work. Um, I'll put all those links into the show notes. And uh, I, I think you know, if there's one thing I want to um, impart with people in this conversation is to really start thinking about the bigger picture here, and sure. uh, really the second half of our conversation. Um, you know, aluminum is fascinating. Obviously, you know that a lot more than I do. And uh, we can, you know, pe people can go back and listen to our first uh, podcast episode if they really want to get into the details uh, in terms of uh, silicon-rich water to help detoxify yeah. and that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think the road ahead, you know, we've got some some hard yards to walk in terms of um, getting back some scientific credibility yeah. uh, in 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 the world. Um, sure. Listen, I, I I'm obviously a huge enthusiast for the subject I spent my entire life researching. But it's not only enthusiasm. I am pretty much convinced, as I've said previously and written about in the book, that there is a, inverted commas, pandemic that we should all worry about. And that is human exposure to aluminium. And I am, like I said, you know, whether or not I live long enough to know whether I am right or wrong, but if I am even partly right, the human race is going to look completely different. You know, we are seeing absolutely escalating levels of chronic illness in our populations, in spite of the fact that we're supposed to have the best medicine in our history. Now, this is not a, there is no sort of, uh, it's not a mystery to me. This is because the world in which 
we live particularly in the developed world is a big difference between the developed world and the develop in the developing world you die of starvation right you don't die of all the chronic diseases and things and or suffer all the chronic diseases that we have this is down to our environment this is down to how we live our everyday lives you know that 100% with your holistic work and stuff i'm a great believer in, in what you say and what you do but i think you know, if anyone is interested, read my, I've only written one book on aluminium and I only will write one book on aluminium. And I try to put that story there for you. And I don't want to worry. I don't want to sensationalize it. I don't want to make people more worried than they should be. But it is something that if we do not address, like I said, and it's not, you know, it's not affecting only humans. It's affecting every living organism on the earth. No living organism has a defense against biologically available aluminium. Huh. Because when the earth was born and when life on earth began, there was no biologically available aluminium. It was kept away from life by its interaction with silicon. Only man's activities have changed that. By taking rocks and making aluminium metal and aluminium salts from those rocks, introducing it into a world. And every organism is now being subjected to that, including us. And it's it, it, it is a it, it's a blockbuster story. Yeah. <laughs> I hope one day somebody wants to make a film about it. And it could be that I am just a lunatic and completely wrong. But at least I've offered this lunatic side to what could be and i believe is happening on the earth today well you have uh, certainly presented a very compelling case so i i think we can both agree on that and uh, since <laughs> you you know the detractors are always going to find um whether it's character assassination or find some you know some weird artifact that they pick up on and magnify that to try and uh, you, you know essentially dismiss everything you're talking about uh, yeah. the fact that your research still holds uh, the fact that you've ruffled the feathers of the establishments and uh, that your work is still uh, you know, still still stands. Uh, I think that's something for us all to look at. So uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Chris, I, yeah. If, if you've got two more seconds, so yeah. An example, an example of this is at the same time as my university put a hold on my research, I was being censored by Google. So when I, when you used to put Christopher Exley as a name into Google, you would get tens of thousands of hits in all sorts, covering every single area that we've ever done. All of a sudden, and you know, like at the bottom of the first page, it says related related searches. Well, all of a sudden it went to a very limited number and under related searches, it's had things like Kiel University Library, you know, my university's library, or it was nothing. And this was Google. So we know that somewhere very high up they were extremely worried about the research coming from little me and my group over here in central England. Right? Yeah. And I'm yeah. proud of that. I know our research is correct. And I know the message is powerful. And I speak to people like yourself, of course, to get the chance to tell everyone about it. Well, I will back that up because uh, in preparation for today's podcast, uh, I don't use Google anymore. So I have a different <laughs> browser, but I tried multiple browsers 
and uh, I could not find your website. So I, <laughs> I, I actually had to go into my inbox, click on your email, click on the link to get to your website. Uh, so uh, and, and of course, what are all the pages that come up first? Uh, Chris Exley, anti-vaxxer, blah, 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 all, all of these other pages by, you know, I do this from time to time when these things come up. I'm like, who are these people? Like, who who are these people that are writing this stuff? And of course, it's, a, you know, a, one's a, a pediatric MD, you know, sort of thing. And and I'm like, how did your page get to the top of Google? When, I, when I'm searching Chris Exley, yeah. how did your page get to the top? Because mm. these are supposed to be algorithms, right? And mm. uh, and for listeners, you know, I've said this before on the show, you can go and, and Google something like supplements are. So just start typing that into Google and what you're going to find is supplements are a waste of time. Supplements don't work. Supplements are dangerous. You're gonna, But it's like, that's not what I'm searching for on my day to day. You know, mm-hmm. the, I'm, I'm searching for what supplements are good for whatever. So surely if it's a true algorithm that's once again objective, that should be feeding me the correct information based on A, what the larger population is searching for that is popular, and B, yeah. what I am searching for based on my search history. That's what I should mm-hmm. be shown, yet that's not what we see at all. And, no. and I can tell you um, that I went down multiple pages before I actually found your actual work, you know, yeah. which, which is kind of crazy to think about. So again, yeah. it's, it ties in with everything we just spoke about in the last half hour, which is which is we're not seeing even at the browser level, let alone the media. I mean, the media is so corrupt anyway. Uh, I wouldn't expect them to tell the truth, but we're we're even at the browser level. We're we're, we're now um, not seeing the correct information you know yeah. we're, we're, it's crazy yeah it's crazy well chris yeah. um thanks so much i have to shoot and i know you have to as well but uh yeah. fa- fascinating conversation thank you so much and really great to connect with you uh, i'm gonna um, put all of your links in the show notes so people can uh, find out your website okay. uh, they can check out your book your Substack, all of that good stuff so uh good yeah. stuff well, yeah. if you let me if you let me have a link i, I will advertise it through our website yeah 100 percent. all right thanks so much chris and okay. uh, thanks all of you out there listening uh, today hope you enjoyed this episode fascinating conversation and as always uh, if you do uh, please uh, share this with your friends your family your community subscribe and uh, leave us a review Um, it does uh, help uh, get other guests uh, like chris so thanks chris have a great day thank you